In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. I am sure that you remember the anger. And you remember the protests. And I'm also sure you remember the slogan. Be defund and abolish policing here in Canada. We are here to ask for the defunding of the police. We are here to ask for the disarming of the police. No justice, no peace! No justice, no peace! But more than two years after protests swept the world in the wake of George Floyd's murder, and a majority of the people said that they agreed with the idea of defunding the police, that slogan has become a bit of a muddled battleground. Meanwhile, in Canada, police budgets have risen. In some places, maybe only by a little, but in other places, they've risen dramatically. Nobody's getting defunded, that's for sure. So why not? As I mentioned, there has been a clear majority opinion expressed in countless polls that some of the money given to police would be better spent on options that reduce harm more effectively than hiring more armed cops. Why do so many people, in bad faith or otherwise, take defund the police to mean eliminate the police? Who actually controls how much money police forces in Canada get? And how much say do those people have in what the police spend that money on? Have we missed the chance to better use that money and better serve and protect vulnerable people? Or is this just the beginning of a long fight? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Ted Rutland is an associate professor of geography, planning, and environment at Concordia University in Montreal. That includes urban planning, which includes a focus on police funding. Hello, Ted. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Of course, I want to uh, start by going back to the summer of 2020, immediately during and following the George Floyd protests. At the time, defund the police was a term you saw everywhere. But what I want to ask you is, back then, what did that actually mean? And what do we know about where public opinion was on that? One thing to, to recognize with the huge protests of the summer of 2020 is that there had been a, you know, many decades of organizing um, in Canadian cities and U.S. cities around the world that sought to restrict and reduce the power of the police, prisons, and surveillance. Um, critical resistance, a U.S.-based organization was formed in 1997 with Angela Davis, Ruth, Ruth Wilson-Gilmore, and others at the head, really popularized a different way of thinking about how to keep each other safe. 
And all that background meant that, you know, during the first Black Lives Matter uprising in 2013, 2014, there were discussions about reducing police power and resources, though the phrase defund the police didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And when six years later, the same problems with police racism and violence were very much apparent, it was clear that the demands had to be clearer. Those, those easy reforms like doing police training or hiring more diverse cops weren't going to do it. And so the, the, the public sort of consciousness or the, among activist communities was really there to say, we want to defund the police and we want to reinvest in communities. And what did that mean? I mean, it absolutely meant taking resources away from the police. And so it didn't mean saving money by, you know, reducing gas usage in patrol cars or saving on electricity. It meant having fewer police. Right. And it meant reinvesting that money in a series of services that that could um, make cities and communities safer. And so the specific kinds of demands, the specific ways that people wanted to defund the police and reinvest in communities might have differed from city to city. But there's a sort of a general argument that we've way overinvested in the police. We require we call on the police to respond to a whole series of security issues in cities and issues that don't even involve security. We need a lot of that money to be cut back, and we want that money spent in ways that actually keep us safer. And where was the public during those protests or immediately afterwards um, in terms of support for that movement? It was really huge. I mean, there have only been two public opinion polls uh, on this issue in Canada. Um, The most credible one was in August uh, 2020, and it found that the majority of Canadians were supporting uh, defunding the police. Um, You know, a higher percentage in Quebec, Ontario, and British Columbia than other provinces, but majority support, which is pretty huge given that the, the idea of defunding the police um, was familiar to a lot of people prior to, to 2020, but it would be very new for a lot of people. And so it's pretty impressive that people sort of jumped on board and were willing to support that idea, even though it's it's not the it's not the simplest idea and it would have been new to many people. And naturally, because municipal politicians in Canada always listen to the will of their electorate, since then, we've defunded the police and, and moved this money to communities, right? Police budgets are lower now, right? Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. I mean, we've solved all those problems. Glad, glad we protested. Uh, Good. Nice to have you on the show, Ted. Yeah, we can we can end the interview now, I suppose. <laughs> no, seriously, where are police budgets now? Well, they've increased. They've increased. There's not a single city in Canada that has um, decreased the police um, budget. Overall, they've increased. Yeah. Which is interesting if you think about it for a moment, because... There have been moments in the last 20 years where police budgets have decreased. In Montreal, there have been three years in the last uh, 20 years where budgets have been decreased slightly. The argument there, though, was a neoliberal argument about, you know, keeping taxes low, keeping public expenditures low. And so it was possible to decrease the police budget a little bit for neoliberal reasons. But if you start to say we want to defund the police to keep communities who are harmed by police safer, all of a sudden it's impossible. And so, you know, what what we can see and what I try to show in this conversation piece is, first of all, that no city has has reduced police funding since 2020. But there are some things that we can look at within those trends that I think are kind of interesting. So we can see, for example, that some cities, notably Toronto uh, and Edmonton, did increase their budgets, but increased them at a smaller amount post-2020 than before 2020. And so that's not something to celebrate, but it is something to notice. 
Whereas there are some cities like Montreal that increased the police budget much more after 2020 um, than before 2020. And so there is a huge problem where, where we're moving in exactly the wrong direction. Don't fund the police quite as much year to year doesn't have the same ring to it as the original slogan. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, and there's been, you know, there's been some pushback on, on the phrase defund the police. Often it's, it's journalists say, you know, that makes it sound like you're going to just remove police from the streets and that's it. And it's like, well, the phrase was always defund the police, reinvest in communities. It's not activists' fault that certain journalists and media personalities have just hitched on the first part and can't seem to remember beyond three words. I think that when you explain to people like really concretely what that might mean, um, people get it very quickly and, and would be in support of it. We're obviously not talking about like disbanding the homicide squad as like the first step in defunding the police. We're, we're actually talking about looking at the many things that police do that have nothing to do with safety. I mean, can you give us some examples? Yeah, sure. You know, so the, the, the exact figures might differ from city to city, but somewhere between 60 and 80% of 911 calls that police are called to respond to have nothing to do with crime or law enforcement. The, the, the police are just our 24-7 all-purpose response to people's needs in the city. And so um, a lot of cities are, are making small steps towards diverting some 911 calls to civilian emergency response teams. So you have like social workers or nurses or mental health professionals responding to certain kinds of calls. And if we want to talk about actual violence, which, you know, people are rightly concerned about, there's too much violence in, in our society and there has been for, you know, a century, uh, although it's lower now than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago. I mean, we can talk about, well, what actually works to reduce violence? And, and you know, decades of research show that it's particular kinds of community inter interventions can prevent violence from occurring in the first place. And if you can prevent violence, then you don't need as many police officers doing investigations of, uh, of acts of violence, attempted murders or murders, because there simply aren't that many to do. So we're not saying, like, that people should, we should all just look the, look the other way if someone, you know, shoots somebody, we're saying we can prevent a lot of that violence from occurring in the first place. And if we can do that, then we simply don't need as many police doing investigations and arresting people for, for, for violent acts. There was wide public support for decreasing the funding for police and investing that into community services. And yet two years later, two and a half years later, um, police budgets are higher across the country. What do you think happened? Like, why didn't that support translate into any meaningful change? I mean, I don't have the whole answer to that, but I think it's pretty clear what happened. I mean, the media was paying a lot of attention to this issue because of the protests, because of what was happening in Canada, the United States, around the world. And so there was a lot of attention given to defunding the police. And I think that that's reflected in those opinion polls in 2020. But obviously, there are groups that were going to fight back against that. And, and the obvious ones are, you know, police departments, police brotherhoods, which are sometimes called police unions. And then, you know, some right-wing politicians, some certain kinds of crime journalists, especially, were going to push back on that. And police brotherhoods came out very quickly, and they established their message. Initially, their message was, yes, reinvest in communities. There are real social problems in cities that the police can't solve. We need spending on certain kinds of social programs, mental health care, etc. But this money doesn't need to come at the expense of the police. 
And that worked quite, quite well. Many politicians adopted that as their language. So when people are saying defund the police, they're like, no, 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 no. We will reinvest in communities, but we won't defund the police. Of course, they didn't reinvest in communities either. Um, but then you have sort of a second strategy, which was just to stoke fear of crime and disorder. Um, and that varied from city to city. In Montreal, they came out hard against gun violence, which they, they took a couple months before they started blaming on, on, on black street gangs. Um, it was pretty obvious that when they were saying gun violence, they were going to move towards just blaming this on black communities. But they, they, to give them credit, they took two months to actually make that move. And for two years, it's been, just been nonstop fear-mongering about black street gangs, even though they, they, they were responsible for a tiny, tiny, tiny part uh, of violence in this city. In Vancouver, they went hard against homeless people, homeless encampments, and drug users. Um, and then Toronto has done a mix of, of, of both, a little bit of that sort of uh, anti-Black fear of gun violence. Uh, and now they're going full bore on fear of poor people on, on public transit. And so what does that do when instead of, you know, during the summer 2020, having big, important questions about defunding the police, being at the center of our discussion of public safety, you know, and very soon after you have police brotherhoods, police police um, forces and journalists who are not organizing in their spare time. They have vast public relations departments um, working full-time to change the message. I mean, I think I think we, we, we could have easily expected that kind of backlash. Uh, it happened. And, and sadly, it's been successful for now. I'm speaking here from Toronto, where uh, the police are getting $50 million more this year, which is obviously a source uh, of significant debate in this city, given um, what we've seen on the TTC and elsewhere. But no matter how much extra money it is, or, or less money it is, when council sets a police budget, how much control can they exercise over that money? I.e., can they say, you know, this is to beef up your 911 systems or to fix your old buildings that are falling down and it's definitely not for like machine guns and tanks like how much control do they have uh well the the thing that that we need to understand is that elected government is not supposed to have any role in ongoing police operations or investigations in cities and that's part of you know a, a, a central structure of our sort of our liberal democracy sure and and that is often extended by people who don't want to take any responsibility for the police to say the government has no role to play in deciding how the police spend their money, distribute their money, etc., which is absolutely not true. And years of court cases have, have demonstrated that uh, municipal governments, provincial governments, federal governments can have as much influence as they want over not investigations, but how that money is spent. And we do see that. I mean, in, in, in Vancouver, for example, Mayor Ken Sim, who rode to power on the endorsement and the financing of the police association, has said, we're going to give the police more money to hire 100 more cops, but we're also going to hire 100 public health uh, nurses to work with the police. You know, I think they shouldn't have hired the 100 extra cops, but it shows that absolutely you can tell, you know, the police how to spend the money in Toronto uh, John Tory is saying, you know, we're giving them this money and a lot of it will go towards so-called neighborhood police squads. So that's another example where you can say we want it spent on this. And then the capital budget is an, is another matter in some ways. Where So we're talking about how they're spending money on like 
cars, guns, tanks, etc. There, cities have total control mm-hmm. um, because you can really just dictate. We're talking about buying new things. You're you're a public institution. We can tell you whether we're going to give you the money you need, that you want to buy more guns, to buy more you know armored cars, to update your telecommunication system. That's straightforward. That that governments can 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 dictate that. Why don't we see that more? Or maybe we do, and I'm just not paying attention, and people aren't paying attention. But it really seems like the fight that we're having, doesn't matter what side of it you're on, is just about the money in general. And whether that's the optics of it or, you know, the statement that it makes, I don't know. But I don't see much of people getting in the weeds on, I guess, to your point, what is something we could have a lot more control over and could direct in a more positive way if we wanted to. Yeah. I mean, I think that some of this discussion happens behind closed doors. Like, I think that there are discussions between, you know, the mayors and the the sort of elite at the municipal level and the executives uh, and directors of police departments. The police department will express what they need. Uh, and then the elite of the municipal government will say, uh, that's not going to fly. People will respond badly to that. How about we, like, say a little bit of this is going to neighborhood policing? So I think this happens behind closed doors. But that sort of just reinforces your question. Like, why are these not public debates? And I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. I think one of the reasons that um, more police and more police funding sells well is because it's such a simple message. Yeah. Uh, you, city residents, you're concerned for your safety. I care about that. I'm going to increase police funding. I think fewer and fewer people actually buy that argument. The the, the richness of our public debate isn't there most of the time. Hmm. And also, I think that you know politicians are not brave. They don't, they're not willing to explain to the population why we're going to do something that um, will actually work, but, but isn't the kind of thing that, we, that we're used to telling you, you know? Um, instead, you have people like John Tory saying over and over again that more police will make people safe, and occasionally he's called on that, um, notably, you know, by CBC's Metro Morning, and he's not able to, to respond. He ends up saying, well, the proof that more police will make us safer is that people voted for me hmm. because there is no evidence to support it. There just isn't. What about the money that isn't targeted for specific things, be that uh, guns or cars or new programs or buildings? Um, what's unbudgeted spending and what's it usually covering? Well, in the, the conversation piece that I wrote, I talked about unbudgeted spending um, just in terms of um, police departments going over budget. I focused on that a bit because it's such a flagrant problem in Montreal. The police goes over budget by $30 million every year. The city covers the, bu- the, the, the overage, and then they increase the budget the next year. And that's just, that's just intolerable to me. I mean, through a democratic process, relatively democratic anyway, we decided on a police budget, and then the police spend whatever they want, and we just cover it. Yeah. And so, you know, what, what, what are police spending money on when they go over budget? It's hard to say because we often don't ask and they don't, they're not very transparent. I mean, they're, they're the least transparent public institution that we have. One, one thing we can say is, you know, 90% of, of the operating budget of police departments in Canada is personnel. So if they're going over budget, they're basically spending more on cops being in the street. And often that means that the, the police have been doing a lot of overtime. So getting paid time and a half. And, and like I say in the piece, 
you know, in the current order of things, some amount of overtime is just a normal part of police operations. If a cop arrests someone at night and they're and the person is in court in the morning, the cop might have to be there and they get overtime. Right. So police departments budget for a certain amount of overtime. We can maybe address that if we wanted to, but it is budgeted um, and it is normal uh, in the current order of things. But what we see a lot of times is, is that the overtime is out of control and Certain experts on the police, former police officers themselves, have pointed out the ways that police officers will coordinate with one another to be strategically out sick one day so that their colleague can get overtime. And then they'll, and then they'll, they'll do the opposite, where the other officer will call in sick so that their friend can then call, do overtime. And so there's a whole set of informal kinds of strategies that police use to do overtime because it's a way to make lots of money. I mean, cities aren't going to have a handle on how much a police department spends every day. But if they go over, if they go over budget, you can say, well, we're going to cut your budget next year. Like there are ways of disciplining public institutions, whether that be like public transit authority, the hospitals, uh, uh, schools, etc. But we do it for all of those folks. So why is this problem so intractable? Is it just fear? Is it just a marketing campaign by the cops? Yeah, I think that's it. I think I think there's a belief that if the police are going over budget, it's it's to protect us. So I think you know they've managed to cement the idea that more police and more police funding equals more safety. And so you know it's a little bit of a riskier move for for a city council to say we're going to force them to obey their budget. So what gets this moving back in the direction it was headed in after the protests in 2020? Um, Part of me wants to look at it and say, if we're still here two plus years later and it's still going in the wrong direction, I'm just not hopeful anything will. But from your perspective, what could could move the needle? So I think the foundation is there for change. So then what's actually going to bring about that change? What's going to translate this sort of public desire and understanding of this issue into policy changes. I mean, I think there's two obvious things. One is that there have been small steps in the right direction, small steps. And I think, you know, Edmonton and Toronto have been on the forefront of uh, of beginning to divert some 911 calls to a civilian emergency response team. And this small, it's not enough, but they're doing that. And I think that their experience will show that that works quite well. And, and that we can continue to move in, in, in that direction. And other cities are going to follow suit. I think, you know, British Columbia just uh, effectively uh, decriminalized certain kinds of drug possession. I, my hope is that that will, that will be successful. It will be emulated elsewhere, and it will also be um, expanded. So right now, it's, you know, it's not really the decriminalization of drug possession because it's such a small amount of drugs, smaller than the amount lots of people hold for their own possession. But it's a small step, I think, and and we can build on that. And then the other thing, obviously, is we're going to have a major moment of uprising again. I think a lot of people who are really invested in the status quo, including most of our political class, sort of think that they've weathered the storm of Black Lives Matter and defund the police. They're like, it was a big deal in 2020, but now no one's talking about it and we won't have to do anything. But it's like, there is no other solution to police racism and violence other than defunding the police. This is not a fad that people were into in 2020. And now, you know, we'll go on to some other kind of fad the next time there's an uprising. It's like the police 
continue to brutalize people, they continue to kill people, and they continue to harm people's lives even when they're doing things properly. Like every time we send someone to prison, it's a policy failure. That's There's something that we could have done to prevent that harmful act from happening in the first place. And so even when the police are doing their job well, it's not a job that we want them to be doing. Like we want them to have to do that as little as possible. So this idea is not going away. And the next time that there's an uprising around police racism and violence, that demand is going to come back again And there's going to be a deeper understanding in the population about what this means and how to do it and more attention to holding politicians accountable to it. So this, I mean, to me, I'm optimistic. Things are going to change. I can't predict how, but there's no way in which this movement is going to die. I don't see it possible to not make this change eventually. It's just hard to know exactly how it'll happen or when. Ted, thank you so much for this. Uh, Really insightful. Thanks so much for having me. Ted Rutland. Associate Professor at Concordia University. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, if you want to talk to us about anything about this episode, a past episode, suggest an episode, simply say thank you or I hate you. You can get us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can call us 416-935-5935. The Big Story is available wherever you get your podcasts and on smart speakers if you ask it to play The Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.